welcome back to the 24-7 Muscle Podcast. Let me start with the standard disclaimer that this podcast is separate from my research and teaching roles at Maastricht University. Today I would like to introduce you to a new topic on the show and that is thermophysiology or thermoregulation and that involves a lot of different topics such as using heat and cold interventions for metabolic health purposes and it is known that for example cold exposure increases insulin sensitivity and can thereby um, improve glucose metabolism and type 2 diabetes. But we will also look at exercise performance and how heat and cold interventions can, for example, improve recovery after an exercise bout. And we will indeed start with this exercise perspective and especially the recovery perspective, as you may guess that there are different reasons why athletes and coaches are incorporating heat and cold interventions into their training regimes. But the focus today is recovery. And for that purpose, I have a special guest who's actually pretty much next door to my office at Maastricht University. And that is Cass Fuchs, who's part of Luke van Loon's group in, at the Department of Human Biology here at my institution. And he has, over the last two or three years, I think, published some great work on cold and heat. So we can actually cover both extremes in that regard with having Cass on the show. And without further ado, I will go right into the episode with you and Cass. I welcome uh, Cass Fuchs on the show. I'm very happy to have you here today, Cass, as a valued colleague at Maastricht University and also a good friend of mine, as for other guys, guests as well. And I'm actually not sure if I know personally your, your background before knowing you during the PhD time. So introduce yourself a little bit and share where you studied, what did you study, and how did it, did you end up in the in the research field that you're currently in? Yeah, Frida, so thanks first of all for for being here. It's very nice. Uh, and indeed, to to give an answer to your question, so what I did in the past. So after my um, my high school, I went to the university, and I wanted to study something related to sports. I think that's what many people that age think. Like our sports is cool, so let's let's do something <laughs> around around sports at the university. So I uh, studied human movement sciences. There was a bachelor or undergraduate degree at Maastricht University. So basically back then I was already starting at, at, at that, at, at, well, at our university. And I did it for three years. And during that three years, I got some courses related to nutrition. And those really sparked my interest in a way that I was getting really interested and fascinated about the combination between exercise and nutrition, and then mostly with regards to, to human physiology. Uh, so that kind of led me to to wanted to to get more information specifically around nutrition, and that I could eventually combine that with with uh, sports physiology or um, yeah physiology of the human body related to exercise. And then I did a two year master program in nutrition. I was also at the University of Maastricht, and fortunately during that masters, I still found that I really liked it, so I, I made the right decision, and I um, then decided to do my internship of my master's also related to uh, sports nutrition. So really to combine them. And I've, yeah, I've, I've actually already since the start been interested in muscle physiology. So that's also now where I'm doing a lot of research in. 
but then, yeah, I could really combine sports and nutrition and related to human slash muscle physiology during my internship that was in the United Kingdom. So I went to Newcastle uh, in, the, in the UK, Newcastle upon Tyne. Um, and I spent in total about a year over there. So first was my internship, about six months. I extended it a little bit because I wanted to finish that uh, that research study I was working on together with my supervisor back then, Javier Gonzalez, who now is at the Bath University. And then uh, after that, I got back to Maastricht for about four months uh, to also work a little bit as a research assistant to to work on some project with some colleagues there. And then I went even, well, then after I went back again to uh, to Newcastle because there was another project that could be run with the same techniques that I used during my uh, master's internship. So I was kind of already, I could basically start it up directly. And there was a kind of a limited time, about five, five months or something. So I um, I got back there also as a research assistant, uh, did that study. That was all perfectly fine. And after that, I started my PhD at Maastricht University, during which I also uh, met you. And at Maastricht, I yeah, mostly now doing a lot of research related to recovery strategies, which we will go into in, in this podcast, uh, but also like nutrition exercise. So kind of combine like several aspects and look at... I'm human, and I think more, more particularly, uh, muscle physiology, mostly at least, with with nutrition, exercise, and specific recovery strategies such as cooling and heating, for example. Yeah, and, and speaking of of muscle physiology, I mean, your group is uh, led by by Luke Van Loon is really well known in the field for its techniques on muscle protein synthesis. And I guess before we go into the papers and the topic of uh, heat and cold, I think it makes a lot of sense for listeners that you elaborate a little bit on how you measure muscle protein synthesis in your group and what is muscle protein synthesis. So just provide us with a little bit of background for the episode. Yeah, sure. So first of all, muscle protein synthesis basically is um, the um, uh, synth, well, that you synthesize new muscle proteins. So what people often don't know in general is that our body is continuously remodeling itself. And that also counts for them, for the proteins in our muscles. So they basically, every single second of the day, they are building each, each, uh, itself up, but they also break each, uh, break themselves down. And if that process of building up and, and breaks down happens like uh, roughly in like a net, net balance, which is the same over time, you kind of can maintain your muscle mass. And we typically see, for example, uh, when people get a specific disease, then at some point they don't have the anabolic factors in place anymore, such as eating and exercise. And I can maybe go into, into that a little bit in a bit. Uh, but those are anabolic factors that stimulate the process of muscle protein synthesis. So the buildup of those, those muscle proteins. Uh, but if that does is not in place because people are bedridden, for example, they're ill, they don't eat much anymore, they don't move much anymore, then they you really see that they waste a lot of muscle mass over time. On the other hand, if we decide to to do a lot of exercise and we, we decide to really go to the gym often and we want to build muscle mass, then we continuously give like extra um, uh, signals to our muscles that, that we train and that we get signals to, to grow our muscle. And then over time, we can indeed build up our muscles. Um, so, and that's then mostly related to that you kind of continuously have like a bit more stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. So building up more muscle proteins that in the long term you can build more and also uh, to a certain extent stronger muscles. Now, how do we uh, measure that muscle protein synthesis? Um, we can do that by what we call um, uh, stable isotope tracers. And I'll try to explain it as simple as I can. So what we basically do, we have participants come into the research laboratory 
uh, we start an infusion. Uh, so with, with labeled amino acids and with labeled amino acids, I mean, those are the amino acids that we also have in our body. And for those that may not know it, all the proteins in our body consist of different types of uh, amino acids. And our body, as I said, they also, our body is continuously also making new proteins. So it needs all the amino acids that are coming into our body via food or that are already available into the body uh, in general. And what we can do, we can infuse our body with these labeled amino acids. So again, these amino acids are exactly the same that we have in our body already, but they're just slightly heavier. So if we then take a blood sample, we can detect with the machines that we use for it. We can detect differences between the amino acid that we have in our own body and the one that we have infused via this, this infusion. And for the rest, apart from that, it's slightly heavier. It functions exactly the same. So it has the same functional properties, et cetera, in our body as the amino acids we already have or get into our uh, into our, our body via, via nutrition. So the cool thing about it is that if we infuse our body with those labeled amino acids, we can also see how much of that label enters in our bloodstream and how much, for example, goes into our muscle. So if we take a muscle biopsy, we can see how much of that amino acid that we infuse is actually being incorporated into new muscle protein. And if we then, for example, take a biopsy at time point zero and three hours or whatever time points you, you're interested in, you can see how much more of that label is being incorporated into the muscle over that three hour period. And now with specific calculations, you can then calculate what is your rate of muscle protein synthesis. So what is the rate at which you make new muscle proteins, essentially? Now, that's one way that we can, can measure it. And what, for, what we can, for example, and also do is, okay, we, we let our participants perform resistance exercise or we give them some kind of nutrition. And now we can also see how does the body then respond. So by taking then a biopsy as well, does then the rate at which these muscle proteins build each other up or like produce new muscle proteins, does it increase? And we typically do see that, of course, because we know exercise, nutrition are very anabolic. So you see a higher rate of muscle protein synthesis um, if you, well, after you, you done one of those two things. Um, so that we can, can measure quite well, actually really accurately and, and, and um, proper in our lab. And then there are also more techniques um, that we may be also nice because it's also related to a study that we will discuss. Another thing we can do is we can also measure this over uh, days and weeks uh, by using a different amino acid or like this is not an amino acid tracer, but a different tracer. This is called heavy water. Uh, so this is just you give like a little bit of water every day to our participants. And this water is not the one that you get out of the tap or from supermarket, but again, slightly heavier. And this water, what, what it actually does in our body, it is being used to incorporate into, again, amino acids. And then we can track those labeled amino acids. And this is very st stable, especially if we take uh, alanine as, as the example. Um, we can just see how much of this alanine that's labeled is being incorporated into new muscle protein. And then also over days or weeks, by taking biopsies and doer calculations, we can assess uh, the rate of muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, great. I hope Brilliant. that was a bit clear. No, that was that was very clear, actually. Brilliant. Um, and I think that will be valued a lot when we go into the studies as it's kind of the main outcome in, in both of the studies, I guess. And um, so the studies that we're going to discuss are around the topic of using temperature extremes, so maybe not extremes, but changes from your homeostatic value to the lower or upper end, towards the lower or upper end, meaning we will talk about cold and heat. And we're going to discuss uh, two separate papers. And before we do that, I think it makes a lot of sense that we actually shortly mention, maybe together also, we can complement each other there, I guess, is what happens 
physiologically within the body and also especially in the in the periphery of the muscle um, when the body is exposed to cold and heat so what's the acute response so how would you picture that for a listener that is not able to to or would not say much more than okay when i'm exposed to the heat i start sweating if i'm exposed to the cold i i start shivering mm -hmm. yeah maybe start with with cold because you need to you get the opposite response at least for most aspects um and what you what you get just just simply put of course you get a reduction in temperature so if you cool from the outside first you see a reduction in skin temperature then it also you can also track if at least if you cool for long enough and also for um well the temperature if the temperature is low enough then you also get a clear reduction in muscle temperature so you kind of from the periphery in the muscle what you get is you get a reduction in temperature so you also get a reduction in for example enzyme activity so that's what you also typically see because obviously the proteins that are like uh, kind of working in our muscle to to do all the functions that they have to do they also are basically um they need to do this at a specific temperature because then they function optimally it's kind of i always try to, to explain it to people if you go outside and it's really cold and you try to move your fingers it's always a bit more stiff and a bit more difficult than if it's like a nice normal temperature so everything works a little bit more slow um, another thing that you get is um, with blood flow. So you, you get vasoconstriction with cooling. So especially also in the periphery, you can clearly see that there is less kind of perfusion. So less blood flow towards your muscle tissue, um, which some would argue for some aspects that in the body, that's, that's something that's useful. But again, you could also argue for the recovery aspect, the one that we go into, that it's potentially actually, actually not something you want, because if you recover, you want to have like nutrients, et cetera, going towards your muscle to be used to stimulate aspects such as muscle protein synthesis, for example. Um, so with cooling, you really see those clear aspects in, in the peripheral tissue. And with heating, you kind of get the opposite effect. So you get like an increase in temperature. Uh, so you you, yeah, you make the temperature obviously uh, higher, um, the increase in, in, in skin as well as in muscle. And you also get some vasodilation. So you get like the, basically that your blood vessels are opening up more and thereby potentially send more uh, nutrients towards your, your muscle tissue that could be used for, for recovery. And again, yeah, we, we tested some of these aspects, but we'll go into that in a bit. Yeah, and I think it's it's good that, to mention for, for listeners that the magnitude of change in both directions within the muscle is, of course, not as big as for the skin temperature. So um, maybe we can give a little bit of, of real values here. So I guess the muscle temperature will be something between 36, uh, maybe 35 to 37 degrees. Correct me if I'm wrong. And uh, what is the typical deviation that you see with typical cold water but also hot water immersion protocols, then what what kind of magnitude change would you expect in the muscle? Is it five degrees going down or up, or is it uh, just a few degrees? No, yeah, first of all, what you say is correct. For you, it depends a little bit how deep in the muscle you measure, but of course our core body temperature is around 37 degrees Celsius on average. And so the deeper in the body you go, so also the deeper in the muscle tissue, the more you, you, you reach towards that temperature. If you go more superficial, more towards the skin, indeed, then it's a bit lower than you go more towards 35, maybe 34 degrees Celsius. Skin is roughly about 31, 32 degrees Celsius, normally speaking. So it depends a bit on how deep you measure and where you measure. Uh, but as you said, like, what can you expect? Again, obviously, it also depends on the pro cooling protocol you apply. 
but we, for example, saw with our cooling study uh, where we measured um, muscle temperature when we put people for 20 minutes in a cold water bath for eight degrees Celsius, we found a reduction that we measured relatively deep uh, of about indeed five degrees Celsius. So just yeah. to put like a number on it, five yeah. degrees Celsius, of course, the, the less long you cool, et cetera, it will change a little bit. But that's yeah. kind of an, an, a, a change you can expect of about five degrees, which is, which is quite substantial, actually. Yeah. And with heating, on the other hand, you don't really see, again, there also depends on the protocol. What we found, well, we heated for 20 minutes again for 46 degrees Celsius. That was about the max that we could tolerate. I did pilot work, so it was uh, <laughs> that's quite quite tough. And that may be good to say already, I just did one leg, because if you do the whole body yeah. for 20 minutes, for that, that's not really a feasible thing to do. Yeah. Uh, but then in that leg, we measured about an increase of, of about two and a half degrees Celsius. Yeah. So that's kind of a range between which you could, like roughly speaking, uh, think of with cooling and heating for the, yeah. for the muscle, at least. The skin no, can, of course, deviate much, much, much higher and lower. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, that's that's good, I think, for, for listeners to appreciate. And so moving away from the basic physiological concepts here and going more into the sports performance area. And that's something that I didn't touch upon too much yet within the podcast in general, which is more about metabolic health outcomes. But one of the aims of the podcast was also to, to discuss uh, sports performance related topics. So set the stage here as well for us a little bit in terms of what's the relevance of cold and heat interventions for athletes and for recovery um, to, to enhance performance. Yeah, so that's good. I'll, maybe before I dive into recovery, um, there are more reasons why athletes cool or heat, uh, specifically cool. And that's, for example, if athletes have to do like some tournaments and they have to like perform repeatedly uh, and it's really warm outside, then many athletes kind of cool the body in between, which I think is a good idea because we know that if your body temperature reaches too high values, especially the core, uh, that you kind of impair your performance. And that typically see around if your core body increases to like around 40 degrees Celsius, which is really seriously high, then you really see that people have to stop exercising because, you know, that's not something you can really tolerate anymore then. Uh, so often what you see is when people like kind of try to have their core body temperature a little bit, like at least keep it maintained or like not that makes you making sure it's increasing too much. They can do some cooling in between uh, exercise sessions when it's warm outside. So I think those, those are useful strategies for the recovery aspect. If we focus on cooling first and what maybe also why it's popular, uh, it has been used for quite a long time. And many athletes, they say that they feel like it kind of improves their recovery by the fact that it, for example, um, reduces their feeling of pain after exercise. And that's also quite well documented that it's like it's, it kind of um, improves the feelings of, for example, delayed onset muscle soreness. And what I mean with that is that you don't really experience that soreness as much if you cool, which kind of also makes sense because you kind of... Again, if I take an example of you burning your finger on like a warm plate and you uh, hold it on under like the tap for it with cold water, you kind of make it numb. So you kind of don't really feel it as much anymore. Um, and also that that's what you could do with cooling. So you kind of get like this kind of um, anesthetic effect, if I can say it like that, where you don't really feel the pain as much. Um, so that's one reason why many athletes do it. And also some studies have actually showed that if you look at performance outcomes, that if you cool, that you could uh, could improve it. 
So if you cool in between two exercise sessions that you can have a, or at least maintain your subsequent exercise session or not impair it as much as you would have done if you didn't cool. I also have to say there are also studies that don't show these effects, uh, but there are some 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 articles out there that, that show f- beneficial effects of um, recovery of performance outcomes. Um, so, and that could also be related to the fact that you just simply don't feel the pain as much, uh, but maybe also uh, like that's simply a placebo effect. And that's also been shown in this, this literature that there could be a placebo effect with cooling. And if athletes typically think something works and that actually goes for for all of us, if we think something works and often it also somehow works uh, a little bit and we do feel a little bit better, et cetera. So um, there is some some literature out there that it could be beneficial for for recovery too. But again, what is the real physiological mechanism behind it? It probably depends, and it's also in some some parts we don't really know what it exactly is. No, I I, I fully agree with that. The placebo effect is something that is very much underestimated in in, my, in many fields, and I think especially in exercise performance, there is a lot of things working because of that, or at least partially because of the placebo effect. Yeah, All right, so let's uh, move into one of the papers. And for listeners that want to pause the recording here and read the paper first, I mean, that's, of course, possible and makes sense also, in my opinion, if you have the time, of course. Um, so the, the title of the paper, uh, we is it okay, Cass, if we start with the hot one first, so the heat paper? Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. so we take that first. So that one is titled Hot Water Immersion Does Not Increase Postprandial Muscle Protein Synthesis Rates During Recovery from Resistance-Type Exercise in Healthy Young Males. And uh, I guess here again, or in general also for the other paper, I, I guess it makes sense that you identify again or take us back to the time when you designed the study. So what was the gap that you identified at that point in time that made you design and conduct the study of this paper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's kind of funny because it actually was more like a follow-up of the cold water immersion paper. (laughs) Uh, But it doesn't matter. I can explain it anyways. And maybe before I slightly, well, before I start explaining it, uh, just shortly, because I just talked about reasons why athletes use cooling, uh, not so much the heating yet. Um, heating is also used by athletes for recovery, but like specifically, if you look at performance outcome measures, uh, then typically cooling has been shown to lead to some better, um, responses than heating the muscle after exercise. So that's still for that regards. And also, of course, you don't really see as many, well, as much improvements with heating the muscle as with cooling for like getting rid of that feeling of soreness. But then just, just for this paper, um, as I, as I said at the start here is, uh, what we, what we, what we know physiologically with, with heating, what happens is that you increase your muscle temperature and you uh, also get some vasodilation. So you get so a potentially more blood flow towards the muscle tissue that could also lead to, for example, more nutrients going to the muscle to increase uh, or yeah, increase specific aspects uh, for recovery, such as muscle protein synthesis. And so what we were interested in is to figure out, so what if we uh, do hot or do what if we do exercise? So resistance exercise in that case. And what if we then heat the muscle afterwards? Can we then further increase that process of making new muscle proteins with eventually the main goal uh, to, for example, build more muscles over time or maybe get stronger? Of course, there are things that many athletes want to achieve. 
So what we did, we uh, we designed the study and we had indeed um, uh, participants coming into our lab that were like kind of familiar with resistance exercise and uh, not necessarily bodybuilder type of guys, but just guys that know, you know, that that went sometimes to the gym and knew kind of the, were familiar with the equipment. And then we let them do resistance exercise. And then we, um, after resistance exercise, we put one of their legs in hot water for 20 minutes. As I said, so this was 46 degrees Celsius for that 20 minute period. And the other leg we put also for 20 minutes in water, but this water was 30 degrees Celsius. And we took 30 degrees Celsius as a control condition because that's kind of a neutral temperature that doesn't really change your temperature uh, much. As I already said, skin temperature is roughly at that at that temperature. So you don't really see m- much changes there in temperature or anything. And as I mentioned as well, I did a pilot study. So one leg in 46 degrees Celsius for 20 minutes is kind of the max that that's kind of tolerable. But we really wanted to go to the max to really see if there are differences that we could, would be able to pick them up, kind of like the, going towards the, the extremes here. And then we, um, over five hours, we measured muscle protein synthesis. So with the tracers that I explained at the start. So by the infusion line, and then just uh, take muscle biopsies frequently and see how much of those amino acids are incorporated into the muscle that was heated after exercise, but also in the muscle that was not heated to the leg that was in a control condition. And we measured those and um, we did not really see any difference between uh, over five hours after uh, after that recovery period or during that recovery period between the legs. So even though we saw an increase in muscle temperature, we did not really see any further increase in muscle protein synthesis. And what's maybe also quickly nice to, 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 to tell here what we also did in that study yeah, we provided a protein shake directly after exercise two. So after we uh, we had our participants going for 20 minutes into those water baths. And this protein shake was also specifically labeled. So we also had a label of amino acids into that protein. So we could also see how much of that, the amino acids that we get from a protein shake. So again, protein shake contains obviously protein. If we ingest this protein, then it will be digested in our in our body into free amino acids. And those amino acids will be transported to our muscles again to be used to build up our own muscle proteins there. But also there, we did not really see any difference in the incorporation of the amino acids from that protein shake in both legs. So there was basically what we found was, okay, if you heat after exercise, you do see the increase in the muscle in terms of temperature, but you did not get any further benefit in muscle protein synthesis. And I think now that's at least in this setting, probably due to the fact that after exercise, you already increase muscle temperature, of course, you already increase the blood flow towards the muscle. And it doesn't really seem with, at least with this uh, recovery strategy, that you can further, or that the further improvement in temperature has any further benefit. So it's potentially maybe that already after exercise, you can already optimize your muscle temperature and blood flow towards the muscle to maximally uh, stimulate muscle protein synthesis. Yeah, okay. I think that that is that is very clear. So that's uh, kind of a short and uh, not too exciting uh, finding, but it's, I, I guess, still very important that you do the research and uh, yeah, check if it works or not. So the, the heat doesn't seem to work in, in that regard. So with your protocol, with your um, outcome measures, um, we have to highlight here, it might still be that there are other outcomes that people will test in the future that respond or uh, change in, in some way. Absolutely uh, but, agree, and, and maybe even uh, different heating strategies. So we just yeah. at, at like kind of a jacuzzi idea or hot tub idea. So that doesn't, but indeed uh, there are more strategies that we can think of that that may have an effect. But we'll have to figure it out in the future, indeed. 
And I, I think, I mean, I, I know from, from being around in the lab that your lab has now installed uh, infrared sauna, right? Yeah. yeah and so, so that's going to be a new hot uh, intervention, I guess, that you're going to apply in different populations now, I think is the idea, right? Exactly. Yeah, we're working yeah. on that. That's true. Yeah. So at, at some point, I will have uh, hopefully Milan Betts on the show, one of the rising stars of CAS lab. So, um, and he will hopefully talk us through his findings then coming from these studies. So let's wait for that. And uh, until then, we switch gears uh, from the heat to the cold. And again, for listeners that want to read the paper first, the, the paper is titled Post-Exercise Cooling Impairs Muscle Protein Synthesis Rates in Recreational Athletes. And I guess here we, so you already told us that the heat study was a little bit designed with the cold study in mind. So the, the cold study was was in that regard first. So what was the gap for the cold study that you identified back then? So why did you, what was the rationale behind the study? Yeah, so um, again, so at the start, we already mentioned many athletes still actually do. They They use cooling as a strategy after exercise. Uh, so they go into these ice baths or they you now even go for cryo chambers, et cetera. Um, and we really wanted to know, okay, they, 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 all, they all do this, but why do they actually do this? I mean, there is indeed some evidence that it could have some beneficial effects, but we thought, okay, if you think about recovery, you also, of course, want to have your nutrients going to the muscle and you want to, uh, to optimize uh, temperature in the muscle as well to kind of allow the muscle to have a specific temperature that every activity of the enzymes goes at as, as, as optimal as possible. And we thought if you cool a muscle, you actually kind of seem to, or you, well, what happens, you kind of lower temperature, you also lower the uh, the perfusion. So we thought like that, that could actually be detrimental for recovery, even though everyone seems to do it and seems to go into this, this kind of strategy. So we wanted to figure out what if we do a study and we indeed try to also focus in this case on muscle protein synthesis. So the making of those new muscle proteins that are, for example, also important for um, repairing damaged muscle proteins that you get during exercise. So you, you damage some proteins, you need to repair them to make new ones to to kind of replace them. Um, so so a very physiologically, physiologically a very important process. And then we again uh, had participants coming into our lab. Um, we let them perform resistance exercise. And then after we put one of the legs for 20 minutes in cold water of eight degrees Celsius and the other leg for 20 minutes at thermoneutral water for at 30 degrees Celsius again. So it was again that control condition. So that was very similar to the to the hot water mm -hmm. immersion study. And then again, we gave also that protein shake. So again, that milk protein shake that contained the, the labeled amino acids incorporated into the protein of that protein shake. So we could also see how much of those amino acids that come from like nutrition or like a protein shake in this case uh, were being incorporated and used by our own bodies to, to build into new muscle proteins and then also compare those between the legs, the leg that was cooled after exercise and leg that was not cooled. And then again, also after five hours, we measured muscle protein synthesis. And in this study, it is more exciting in that sense. Uh, what we found was that you indeed um, saw a much lower uh, muscle protein synthetic response in a leg that was cooled compared to the leg that was not cooled. This is about 20%, and this is really substantial. Mm -hmm. So kind of what, what, you, what, you, what we saw there is that if you cool a leg after exercise, you actually attenuate or in some way inhibit the response of, of muscle protein synthesis increase. So you kind of 
in that sense, um, attenuate your, your, your recovery, at least a part of your recovery um, response. And that's obviously something, at least for, from a muscle protein synthesis perspective, you, you don't really want, want to have. Also, what we found is when we looked into those amino acids from that protein shake uh, and we've, we tra- tracked down their incorporation into new muscle proteins in both legs, we also found that much less and about this is about 25% of those amino acids were being used and incorporated into the muscle that was cooled compared to the muscle that was not cooled. So you also lower your ability of the body to use the amino acids coming from your protein, which you, and, and you know, nutrition. Um, after exercise um, and to incorporate and use them into the muscle to to improve your your recovery and adaptation process in that acute part of the study so we also have a, had a longer term part but in an acute part of the study we clearly saw that it was actually detrimental for uh, for muscle protein synthesis uh, at least and the the acute that you are talking about is like within five hours right and i think you yeah. saw differences between two hours and five hours can you highlight again what the differences were yeah, so after five hours, we, we found the differences, at least so yeah. the, the statistically significant differences. Uh, at two hours, we didn't see that yet. Um, mm-hmm. And you're probably going to ask, why why is that? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, I don't know for sure, but what I think is exercise in itself is a very potent stimulus of, of increasing muscle protein synthesis, so is nutrition. And I think just after that, the first two hours, because the increase, what we typically see in um, uh, muscle protein synthesis is so high, I think... We were not able to already pick up differences there. But if you look over the more longer term in the recovery phase, then at some point you you seem you start seeing those differences in terms of um, the, the amino acids that are being used. Of course, it takes a bit of time to incorporate into new muscle proteins, etc. So I think the, the, the five-hour time point was definitely necessary to pick up different, to be able to pick up differences. Is that also due to a specific receptor in muscle that would take some time to be translated from increased or downregulated uh, gene expression and then being incorporated into the muscle membrane and so on? Is that, that a possible mechanism? Are you yeah. following up on any receptors? That's 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 possible. I mean, if you wait a bit longer, uh, then then it, then you. I mean, directly after exercise, what you get is you get like the um, the the massive increase in protein synthesis in the muscle, and that can work via the mTOR pathway. I mean, there may be much many more pathways involved. And also, if you eat eats like a leucine-rich protein drink, for example, which we give for the protein shake, you get like really a very very potent stimulus to increase your muscle protein synthesis. And of course that goes for both legs because you, you know, mm. you eat it, it comes in via the mouth and it goes to both of your legs. I think because you already cool one of the legs and the other, she didn't, you, you may already see some a slight differences, but we couldn't, we didn't see significant differences between the legs there. But again, if you wait a bit longer, of course, then at some point, the continuous supply of these nutrients to the muscle, et cetera, that, that, that becomes more important for the recovery phase and also to measure muscle protein synthesis. And so if you wait a bit longer, then you do see at some point, you see that these these differences become even more substantial and also significant. You're talking about the longer perspective. So what you just mentioned was the, the acute effects within the five hours directly after exercise, but you also had kind of a separate design within that study where you also looked at the more long-term perspective. So what was the the duration that you looked at and what were the findings there? Yeah, that was for two weeks. And indeed, the reason why we wanted to do that too is, okay, if you have like this short-term effect, what actually happens? Does it also translate into the long-term? Because it's of course nice if you show over five hours of recovery that there is a difference. 
but for many athletes, they they will not care about it um, if it doesn't impair their uh, um, uh, gains in muscle mass or strength, for example. They wanted to know what happens in the long term. So we also wanted to see, like, what if we measure protein synthesis in the muscle for two full weeks, and then we use that that labeled water method uh, as, as a tracer technique. And then so over two weeks, what we did, we had seven exercise sessions. And after every exercise session, we basically did exactly the same thing. So we did progressive training too. So if if they um, did like the maximum weights and repetitions at one session, we also improved it for the next day, et cetera. So there was like sort of progressive overload there. And then also after every session, we did the same leg. We put in like the cold water and the other leg in the thermoneutral water. So exactly the same duration. So 20 minutes and also the cold leg at 8 degrees Celsius, the thermoneutral leg at 30 degrees Celsius. And then by taking a biopsy before and after that, that two-week period uh, from both legs, we could then also see, okay, what is the incorporation of the amino acids, at least specific, in this case, specific amino acids, uh, D-alanine. So that's basically what you get from the from the labeled water. We can use that as the marker of muscle protein synthesis there. And looking into that incorporation into the muscle. And what we found there was that in line with our acute findings over the first five hours after exercise, we also saw a significant difference between the legs over two weeks. And this was about 12%. So you clearly see that the acute findings translate also into the long term. And what I find quite interesting here is that you saw 12% difference. And if you look at that, you just the only difference that you had between the legs was basically that you just cooled a few times, uh, like seven times for just 20 minutes over a full two week period. So that's, that's basically nothing. That's maybe 1% or not even of, of, of the whole time. And then that small difference has already such a big impact on a difference in, in terms of muscle protein synthesis. So I was really surprised by that, uh, but it does, does, does seem to show that that cooling has a very potent effect into into your muscle um, kind of physiology and metabolism and in this case specifically for muscle protein synthesis rates if you want to optimize those at least or maximize them after exercise not something you want to do Uh, and maybe to go a little bit long longer term now very shortly because this this is not my research but uh, now also uh, researchers have indeed also shown that if you do even longer term um, uh, measurements. So if you measure over more longer term uh, periods and measure like, for example, muscle mass, that you also see that if you do repeated cold water immersion, that you also see lower gains in muscle mass and strength compared to if you would not do cooling. So it also seems to translate to even the real long term uh, effects. I think that's, that's really fascinating findings and we definitely need to discuss the practical relevance of that later. Uh, one, one more question that I had was you mentioned mTOR and I think, I'm not sure if you mentioned inflammation markers yet, but I remember reading about these also in the paper. Maybe you can also just shortly um, give us the results on that. So you measured mTOR expression and you also had specific inflammation markers acutely, but or, or only long-term, I don't remember. No, that was indeed uh, acutely. So yeah. in that acute design, we also measured inflammation markers indeed. So uh, basically um, <clears throat> mRNA expression. And that we did it because it gives you an insight into what happens with inflammation because many people still always say like, okay, uh, if you cool, you reduce your inflammatory response, blah, blah, blah. And thereby you get this and this and this result. Now, there was one paper um, before we did this. Well, uh, was yeah, it was before we did the study. They kind of measured also some markers of inflammation 
uh, by taking muscle biopsies. And there they did not really see differences between uh, cooling versus not cooling. So kind of showing that, okay, even though everyone says like cooling lowers in the inflammatory response in the muscle, they didn't find it. So we also wanted wanted to get some markers, at least to get some insight into this. And we also re- didn't really see that cooling actually lowered um, the inf- inflammatory response. And I have to say, again, it's like a snapshot that we took. It's just like we took a biopsy. We just measured mRNA expression. So it doesn't give you the full picture of it. But it also doesn't doesn't give me any reason now to say Mm -hmm. like, ah, there seem to be very clear differences in inflammation if you cool versus if you don't cool. So I'm not 100% convinced yet that that is the mechanism by which we see specific outcomes with with cooling, such as protein synthesis. But um, yeah, I think it's nice that that we could just measure it and just see ourselves what happens if you really look on the muscle tissue, because there are studies that look at blood samples and look at some markers in the blood. And if that changes, if people are exposed to, to cold or not. But if you really look into the muscle and that's, of course, where you want to have your recovery, then then we haven't really clearly shown yet that that inflammation inflammation is going down no that's that, that i think is also really important for listeners to to keep in mind here so it's on the one hand you you do, you cannot confirm this hypothesis but i think we can also not exclude it based on these findings right true all right um one thing that is particularly interesting to me personally and also for the perspective of this podcast as you may know my my research background is in the circadian rhythm field and uh, the 24 7 and muscle is not because we only talk muscle around the clock it's also about rhythms in muscle and uh, about 24 hour circadian rhythms and skeletal muscle metabolism And one thing that I'm really interested in is the timing of your interventions and whether you consider that overall, whether that could induce variation, whether that could induce uh, changes, whether you would expect diurnal rhythms in your outcome parameters. So what I'm, what I mean is you always do your, your resistance training and you either do something right before your bout of resistance training or you do it directly afterwards like the like the heat and the cold and what about the perspective of because i think in your studies you usually do that in the morning because your typical test days are your your participants come in in the morning uh you have them uh get familiarized to all the the measurements that will be conducted and then you do the resistance training so in the in the first half of the day for sure do you expect uh or would you expect differences um from uh, about the whole hot and cold induced effects on muscle dependent on whether you perform the exercise and the immersion protocol in the morning or in the evening is there is there any known data on that and what do you expect differences very good question uh i don't have a hard solid answer on that what i can say is we uh, with the cooling study we also did that training intervention so the seven exercise sessions and that was also because we didn't use the the, the amino acid traces they also didn't have to come the whole day in our lab uh, so we basically just had them in the lab for like doing the resistance training then do the cooling intervention give a protein shake and then we let them wait for two hours not to rewarm the muscles too much yet by cycling or something uh, but that was quite flexible because of course course we were like also dependent on the on the time of our participants so some actually came in the evening so some yeah. came in the evening to do the exercise to do all the procedures some came in the morning some came during the afternoon 
there I did have a look at the individuals and I didn't really see clear differences dependent on things like when they came uh, and train or uh, or something like that so what I would think I mean I I mean this is this is more your research topic with the circadian rhythm obviously than it's mine and I definitely uh, I find it really fascinating and interesting to to know more about it uh, but you what I do think now. I do have to say that, but that's, it's not. It's, not, it's also I not a lie. I paid you for this. Do you? Um, no, but what I, I I still think, like because cooling seems to be so potent, I think that if you cool in the evening or at night, even or in the morning, it still will have those effects on like reducing muscle temperature and also um, changing in that sense your um your enzyme activity or the 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 level at or the the speed at which enzymes kind of function so i think cooling is so potent that it in that sense doesn't it's it's not a doesn't really matter as much when you would apply it even though there may be small small differences i cannot tell we didn't study it i'm also not aware of research that did Uh, but i think because the physiological response is so strong i think it's like even in the evening or in the morning it will have those those effects yeah, just I, I completely agree, and I don't think there is any data out on this question, at least in humans. And just to give you my speculative thoughts here a little bit, just based on the circadian rhythm and body temperature that is well known. So body temperature increases over the course of daytime, peaking in the evening, and then usually in preparation for sleep, uh, core body temperature drops uh, with its lowest point around 4 a.m., at least in, in young, healthy people. And um, that is, of course, really well coupled to sympathetic nervous activity during the day, vasoconstriction. So more vasoconstriction during daytime, uh, more parasympathetic activity in the evening, preparing for sleep and then having the, the vasodilation that helps in dropping the core temperature. And I would expect, just as you said, that uh, especially the cooling will have an effect irrespective of, of daytime every time basically but i would expect that it is less anticipated by the system if you apply it in the evening because there your body would automatically endogenously cool down by itself by vasodilation putting all the blood flow towards the periphery to cool down so there the cold stimulus would really be opposite to what the body is doing and would be quite uh, a, a shake for for homeostasis whereas in the morning when you apply it it just supports the sympathetic activity and is in that regard more in line with your circadian rhythm and for the for the heart basically the opposite applies so the the body would uh, incorporate that into its vasodilation response in the evening that's also why it's it's kind of recommended and almost common knowledge i would say that sauna in the evening is good for you warm shower before going to sleep uh helps in in uh speeding up the process of sleep onset and so on but if you then would do the opposite and put that hot intervention in terms of sauna in terms of hot water immersion into the morning then again, the opposite would happen. You would induce a vasodilation response at a, a time where the body is not expecting it and where the body also doesn't want it to happen. So it would be more disruptive to homeostasis. So I, I I don't know whether that would lead to more adaptations and whether these adaptations would be more beneficial. But at least there is definitely some kind of time of day dependency in that question that the body expects the respective protocol at certain times of the day 
and it would support the body more at certain times of the day. I think we have a new study. Uh, <laughs> it's, no, it's interesting stuff. Um, yeah, right. Would so, be cool to, yeah, to figure that out. Yeah, I, I think so too. And I, I mean, based on what we know about the clock and muscle, I, I would also expect that uh, the clock and muscle would differently respond depending on whether you apply the cold or the heat in the morning or the evening and at least in in animals there is data on that and it has been shown that at least for the cold if you apply that in the rest phase of the mice versus the active phase of the mice it, it changes mm-hmm. the muscle clock differently so that has yeah, been that's shown. that's I'm, I'm again as i said i'm, I'm very interested in, in that whole research because it's it's also for from exercise really interesting to me to figure out and maybe even for individuals too so how do individuals respond for exercise with with nutrition with like recovery strategies and i think it's really cool because the more we know and also you of course with your research that you're doing the more we we, we get insight into it the more questions we will get like hey yeah. how does this impact all these other aspects that we already like have been studying for so much so so many years and i think there's a lot of stuff we can still learn from that and yeah very interesting yeah let's let's keep that in mind for the future 100 <laughs> percent all right, let's then make the the switch to to practice. So a little bit more the translational perspective now for for people for 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 the athletes perspective for people just going once in a time once upon a time into the gym. Uh, so what based on your studies would you recommend in terms of hot and cold? When it comes to post-exercise intervention, so just give a little. I mean, you have been asked this a lot after, especially the cooling study. I think so. What are the practical recommendations coming from these studies? And we know the limitations, but what do you think is is the clear message? Yeah, I think the first thing that everyone should ask themselves is, okay, what is the goal that I want to have after my exercise session? So is it, um, for example, um, in this case, to really grow my muscle mass and grow in terms of strength? If that's your goal, then I would not advise you to apply cooling in in this way. Um, If it would be, maybe some people are like in season and some people swear by, by cooling after exercise because it makes them feel, I don't know, maybe more fresh or less soreness. And it's because you want to make sure that for the next exercise session, you you can optimally perform again, then there may, may be a time and place for it. So it really comes down to, okay, what is the goal that you want to achieve after your exercise session? And I think that's, first of all, the most important thing to keep in mind before you make a decision. And again, many people these days just go into a cold bath because other athletes do it with then and they see them on television. Um, but I think you first have to really think, okay, why am I actually doing this? And what's 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 my benefit? Or maybe the the downside of it so that's that's what i always say and then yes again there could be some reasons to still do it um and maybe one other reason indirectly also a little bit what you just said some people tell me that they if they take a cold shower or if they take some cold bath before they go to sleep that they sleep better i know this is very anecdotal uh, but if you sleep better by applying a specific strategy then i would also say then by all means do it because sleep we know is also extremely important for your recovery process so there may definitely be a time and place for strategies. It just depends again on what your goal is and and um yeah, what kind of actually what what you what you're looking for. So but if you, if we focus on the aspect of um muscle mass and growth, then I would not do cooling. If we go to the 
hot water immersion strategies again we didn't really see any difference there or any effect uh, i would say there if you really like to do a go into a hot tub after exercise you can do it there doesn't seem to be a detrimental effect on at least muscle protein synthesis um, but it's also not really giving you any more benefits so that's more like up to the well person if the person likes to do go into a hot tub after exercise it's fine but do not expect to really grow more muscle uh, by by doing that strategy and for for the athletes' perspective, and athletes, let's maybe uh, we can put that a little bit more specific. A, a football athlete that is looking for for speed, for for um, improvements in maybe jumping these kind of yeah things yeah these these kind of outcomes exactly. Yeah. So more related to 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 ball games, so to say. Um, so an athlete that is in the preseason wants to optimally prepare himself or herself for the season would you advise him or her to go for cold or heat interventions around the workouts when the aim is speed and jumping performance uh in the adaptation well in the preseason when it's mostly about adaptations uh i would not necessarily advise it maybe you can do it in some sessions if you have like for example two training sessions a day maybe one in the morning one in the evening and you want to make sure that in the evening you can also optimally perform and maybe for this specific athlete this person says like yeah for me it really feels nice if i do it and i i, I can perform better you could apply it sometimes but i would definitely not say like do it all the time because you're looking for adaptation you're looking for um, maybe some increase in strength as well or like jump power etc and then cooling does not seem to be a smart idea because you kind of hinder those those adaptations if you do it frequently after every session. Um, so I would not definitely not do it all the time. So definitely not say like I just just apply cooling as a strategy uh, regularly. Uh, maybe just focus on specific time points when you think there is more benefit to it than there are downsides to it. When would I maybe apply cooling as again what I said at the start as well? If you are uh, doing some training sessions outside, it's really warm. Um, then in between, you could maybe do some kind of strategy of cooling, but it doesn't have to be a cold water bath. It can also be like a slush puppy or like some some cooling vest or something to make sure that you reduce your body temperature, core body temperature, and thereby make sure that you maintain your, your exercise performance. Uh, but as a strategy of recovery, I would not say cooling for most of the time, especially not before or pre-season in season again it depends a little bit more on what is your uh, what's your focus so is, is it just okay we have for example a football player here that that needs to perform uh, optimally multiple times a week because this person is playing in the national league is playing maybe champions league maybe also for for for, for the country um, then yes you could maybe think sometimes of applying cooling if it could reduce some soreness or some pain or those kind of aspects um, but again there I would really consider and think okay when do you apply it with what reason i think that's 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 very important to me always to, to ask yourself these questions and with heating i don't again i don't really see so far many benefits with at least using a hot tub after exercise for specifically that muscle physiology outcomes but again if that can relax you if you, it relaxes you to go into a sauna afterwards or into a hot tub and thereby again you may just you know sleep in a bit better or something like that then you can definitely apply it and and help you indirectly to to help your recovery and your adaptation by by sleeping better so it's like it's like a whole interplay there's never really a black and white answer to yeah, these sure. these questions and that's what people always want but i think it's very <laughs> important to keep in to keep the context in mind as well 
And that, that I think also applies for, for the following question that I wanted to ask you that is about the duration and severity of cold and hot water immersion. I guess you, you cannot really say much more than the protocol that you used in your cold water immersion worked in, in the way that it worked. And I, or is, is there anything else that you can say beyond that, that you would say, okay, this duration is definitely too much or too little. So what, what can we give listeners here as a take home? Yeah, I think we did 20 minutes at eight degrees Celsius. So clearly that will have a negative effect on, uh, let's say the, uh, the increase in muscle protein synthesis after exercise already. Like, as I said, there's also a study that, uh, from Australia that looked at 12 weeks of resistance training. They did 10 minutes, so that's half the duration, and also slightly warmer, so at 10 degrees Celsius, uh, of cooling after every resistance session. And they also saw clearly after 12 weeks lower increases in, in muscle mass and also strength. So if you already use, like a let's say, a more um, moderate, I wouldn't say it's necessarily moderate, but the more moderate protocol than what we used, then you still see uh, detrimental effects. So I think just cooling in general, I would not advise you that if that's, that's your goal, to, to improve those resistance training adaptations. And maybe we will probably not go into too much detail here, but for endurance type of exercise adaptation, it could be slightly different. There is still like a lot of reasons oh, yeah. we need to, to figure out whether uh, cooling or heat can be can be beneficial in some ways there uh, but specifically for for the resistance type of, of exercise um training or like the the things you want to get out of it with resistance exercise then um it's not really um a smart idea to do and also it seems to go be consistent for like a like quite of a range of, of cooling protocols no i think that's that's a really good perspective in the end also for listeners to appreciate that we were talking mostly or actually exclusively resistance training here. So the endurance type of uh, of exercise modes. So for triathletes, for marathon runners, for cyclists, it might still be a different story. Yes. So that, that I think brilliantly done here, the practical recommendations. And usually I end with a more personal perspective, Cass. So what I would like to ask you on the one hand is, where is your research going in the future and what would you like to achieve in your academic career? Because I've, as I know, you just finished your PhD. You're still working as a postdoc in Maastricht. What is up at the horizon for CAS? So yeah, I'm indeed now a postdoc. So I will kind of have a similar, I will kind of keep continuing this research line with recovery, with nutrition, with exercise. Um, also with like, as we already discussed with some heating strategies, so do a bit more cooling work just to figure out a bit more things around heating and cooling and also need the sauna. So uh, we also did, uh, did the, the research studies already on that one. So that will be exciting to see those results. Then I will also yeah, keep focusing a bit more on uh, carbohydrate metabolism. So apart from protein metabolism that we can discuss there and the effects of, in this case, cooling and heating, I also focus on just uh, protein products and look at muscle protein synthesis or protein metabolism. I also like to, to focus on carbohydrate metabolism in muscle and liver uh, mostly to see what is the effect of specific types of carbohydrate intake or at specific um, um, amounts, et cetera, on muscle and liver glycogen repletion. And that's really important also for recovery because specifically this is more towards the endurance type of athletes. They really need to 
um, haven't optimized uh, or like optimized the 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 carbohydrate stores in their body and muscle and liver mainly to support their their endurance type of activities at least if they do it for a relatively high intensity for a prolonged duration so i'm also really focusing on on those kind of things and then also looking into non-invasive ways to to assess uh liver and muscle glycogen in in athletes and see how we can you know uh, look at strategies that could maybe also influence uh, how fast we can recover from that perspective Right. So that's kind of in short, like some research lines that I'm really working on and uh, that I find very, uh, very interesting and I'm quite passionate about too. Yeah, no, and of course, as as soon as you have new data published, I'm also happy to have you again on the show and de- discuss these findings as well. But we've b- b- before we go into the, to the end of the episode and um, what interests, I guess, most listeners as well, how does uh, the scientist Cass Fuchs also implement his research findings on a, on a private basis? Because I mean, I know that you are always trending a little bit towards uh, bodybuilding practices yourself. So, what what um, did you learn for your personal training from your studies? From the cooling and heating, or just in general? <laughs> so let's let's uh, limit it to the cold and heat. Okay, that's maybe good because otherwise I have a whole. Lot more story to <laughs> um, yeah, so definitely for for me, I mean, I wasn't already like a huge fan of of cooling uh, as a recovery strategy because I think it's like really <laughs> it's like really a stress kind of response. Even though I find it interesting, uh, it wasn't really something that I was like very keen on doing myself. Uh, so that's also not something I apply. I really, I actually never really go into cold water. So no, I don't do that. Also, don't really go into a hot tub after exercise. That's also not something I may have done it if it was really beneficial out of my studies, but it doesn't <laughs> seem to be. Uh, so now I actually don't don't really use either of them regularly. I mean, I'm still keen on like trying uh, out of experience once that that's such a cryo chamber. Not 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 so much after my access, but just in general, the feeling. So it's just these cryo chambers or saunas that you have that you go for just a few minutes at like an extremely low temperature of air around you uh, to, to experience what that what that feels like. But that would not be something I would routinely apply after my exercise uh, sessions, more out of interest. And a hot tub, yeah, it's nice. If I if there is a hot tub around, I don't have one in my apartment, <laughs> but it, I just like to just chill sometimes in, in one, but that's also not something I do very regularly. So at least these two strategies, I don't really apply. Uh, yeah, no, I, I get that completely. And as we already get less serious away from the research, what I like to end the the episodes with is a personal funny anecdote from your research work. So something that you would be willing to share what happened in the lab, uh, something that is uh, not too private uh, and not uh, in terms of data privacy still possible to share. (laughs) <laughs> oh i have i oh, i have to think about this i always have like a lot of funny things that happen yeah, in the test days <laughs> i think what i i mean i i should think about something more often like you have like really funny uh people coming in the lab and especially if you work with them for like more you know a prolonged period of time so with that cooling study for example where they repeatedly came into the lab you just get to know them much better and you have like really funny and nice conversations with them and I don't know why, but this now something comes up in my head uh, whilst thinking about it. And I will not not maybe mention names because that may not be. Uh, <laughs> but one of my previous participants, and I haven't spoken to him like in a long time, but he has a specific. Uh, he was he was born in in France, uh, so he has like also quite a um, well a, a French name, I would say. But he his parents were actually like 
they had like a name in mind for him. He told me this story. And uh, when he was born, his parents saw him and they're like, ah, actually this person or like our baby doesn't look like the name that they wanted to give him. So then they last minute decided to give them a whole different name uh, just because he didn't look like what they expected. And I find it just just really funny that that's some that, that apparently happened that you you have a child is born and you already have like a name in mind for a long time. And then last minute, nah, it doesn't look like this. So let's go. Let's give him a, a different name. <laughs> and he was also really a character. So that was really funny to uh, to hear that story. Um, so yeah, that's that's something that comes in my mind that that made me laugh back then. But there are there are many more things. But yeah, you know, like running running studies can can fortunately also often be fun. Apart from yeah, stressful. I, I think from from your uh, PhD defense, I remember people talking about your bed rest study and you playing uh, FIFA with your participants as they were not allowed to leave the bed. And so the, I think these are these are great anecdotes. And I mean, you're really passionate about the participant contact as well. And that's uh, something I really admire about, the, especially the work in your group, I think. Really yeah. good stuff. Anyway, um, Cass, uh, how can people reach you via social media? And if they want to get in contact with you to join the team, to ask more questions, how can they do that? Uh, yeah, social media, I would say it's mostly Twitter and Instagram. Uh, so it's I mean, I'm, I'm, it depends on how busy I am. I'm more or, or less active on these platforms. It's always like uh, the first thing I drop if I'm very busy. But I, I generally do share stuff on it. So uh, on Twitter, that would be 27CJ. So 27CJ, that's just the Twitter like uh, handle. Or how do you call it? Twitter yeah. name. Yeah. And on Instagram, is just my name. So that's just like uh, written Casfuchs. So it's a C-A-S-F-U-C-H-S. And then that name, and then you find me on Instagram as well. And of course, if there are specific questions, I'm happy if people just send me an email and that would be just my name. So Cass.Fuchs, so again, F-U-C-H-S at MaastrichtUniversity.nl. Or, or they can ask you, and I mean, yeah, we uh, we see each other regularly, so that can we also will, be an option. We will manage and I will forward any any people interested and I'm I'm sure there there will be people after this episode. I think that has been uh, a great pleasure here Cass with discussing your work and I think you did really good putting all the content into I think just an hour of of recording. So really thanks for taking the time and uh was great having you and as I said I will make sure to invite you again on the show. Uh, when there is new stuff coming out from you. Thank you, Friedrich. It was nice to be here with you. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Cas Fuchs, and I hope that you could take something away from it for your own training in terms of what to do with cold and heat exposure after your exercise session with having specific goals in mind, as Cas mentioned. And uh, something that I wanted to, to highlight again is that the interventions that we discussed, the specific studies with CAS, the, that CAS conducted, were really focused on the local effects. So by cold water and hot water immersion of the leg, you are not having the whole body effect of um, hypothermia or hypothermia, so cooling and uh, heating, that is, of course, kind of a limitation of the studies in that regard that you cannot compare the findings necessarily to studies where you heat the entire body through sauna, for example, or you cool the entire body through a cryo chamber. 
So the effects there might still be quite different as in the studies of CAS. These were um, local water immersion interventions of just really cooling or heating the leg locally and not the entire body. With that said, I think we will move on in the next episodes with that theme of thermophysiology. I cannot promise too much in, in terms of when the episode will come out and who the guest will be, as uh, there are a little bit of scheduling problems at the moment with people being quite busy and I'm actually also planning to take some longer holidays myself. So I at least can promise that new episodes will come out the latest by April. Until then, I hope you can listen to some episodes uh, that have been published previously. Maybe you missed a few on the time-restricted eating and uh, eating breakfast like a king, for example, but maybe also on the light episode. So feel free to check these out again if you haven't done that yet. And otherwise, I hope to still get more feedback from you on how the podcast is doing, how I'm doing as the host. And with that, I'm out and uh, see you next time. <laughs>